the story of two dental hygienists from opposite sides of the world who became friends because they realized their professional lives were so in sync. One in Australia and one in America, both exuding their high passion for high-level patient care, both pushing back on legacy dentistry. If you are ready to revolutionize the practice of dental hygiene through science and innovation, join us as we are Disrupting Dentistry. Hello and welcome to the next installment of the Disrupting Dentistry podcast. If you are new here, welcome. If you are one of our disruptors, welcome back. I am your United States dental hygienist, Melissa Obratka, with my partner in crime, Tabitha from Australia. And I'm really excited tonight that we've got another Australian guest. And tonight we have Dr. Amanda Pernuin. Amanda is a Perth oral medicine specialist and adjunct senior lecturer at the University of Western Australia a lecturer at Curtin and consultant at Perth's Children's Hospital. For oral medicine, she is the chair of the Australasian Sleep Association Dental Sleep Medicine Council, the chair of the Oral Medicine Academy of Australasia Education and Scientific Committee, on the board of studies of oral medicine at the Royal Australasian College of Dental Surgeons, and on the expert advisory panel for the Head and Neck Cancer Australia. Otherwise, she's on multiple committees for not-for-profit boards in dentistry and health-related causes, and she obviously doesn't sleep. She sounds like she's 100 <laughs> years old, but she's young, way younger than us as well, so she's an overachiever, <laughs> and she's pretty amazing. Thank you, Amanda. <laughs> oh, thank you so much for having me, and you will be happy to know that I sleep a lot. I like my sleep. <laughs> when, Not when, an early bird. When do you sleep? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> All the time. Yeah. All the time. It's yeah. my, my favorite thing to do. <laughs> I just can't believe you have time. Um, we're so thankful for you to come on the podcast tonight. And tonight we're going to talk about burning mouth. But before we get there, Amanda's finished high school. How did you make the decision to do dentistry? Actually, I think it was a little bit of serendipity because when I was in high school, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I assume that's the same as most year 11s and year 12s. Yeah. So I thought I wanted to do law, but then I realized that I didn't want to argue with people um, as a career, which is a bit ironic now because I'm on a few boards and committees. So I do do a little bit of that. <laughs> but then it worked <laughs> It worked out quite nicely because uh, one of my really good friends was in dental school when I was going through high school and we knew each other from Singapore before I moved from Singapore to Australia. And I thought it was really interesting because it really seemed to marry like artsy type things because I like using my hands and things like that. Um, there was a little bit of science. It was a stable career. And one of the things was that, you know, if I ever wanted to have kids or something like that, I felt that it could be something that I would have a little bit more flexibility timing wise. So it kind of was like, Somebody I knew was doing it. It seemed like a good career, so why not? And I applied for it and I got in. So I wasn't one of the people who like grew up knowing that I wanted to be a dentist. I actually really didn't know what I wanted at all. Um, and and then I sort of like it as soon as you got into it, or was it a you know like you know because if you didn't have much knowledge about it beforehand, sometimes it could be a bit like oh wow, look at this. <laughs> well, I loved mm -hmm. university um, because university was extremely different for me because you know growing up in like I'm, I'm but people can't see me but I'm Asian so growing up in like a conservative Asian household like I never really got the experience to you know I was in a girls school my entire life so uni life was very different for me and I really quite enjoyed it 
the dentistry kind of was like a little bit as an aside, especially in the first couple of years of uni, because it was, um, you know, I was just getting used to university, meeting new people. And then the more I did it, I think the more I realized it was quite interesting, but I didn't really fall in love with what I was doing until I did oral medicine. And so where did you study Mm -hmm. dentistry? So I did my dentistry uh, at the University of Melbourne. So I actually um, did my last few years of high school and my dental degree um, in Melbourne yeah. before I moved to Perth. And then how long were you a general dentist before you went and did oral medicine? So I was a general dentist for about five years. Yeah. And what made you pick oral medicine as a specialty that you wanted to go do? Again, it's one of those things that I think things just worked out. So when I finished dentistry, I didn't know I wanted to specialize. So I wasn't one of those people who knew from dental school that I wanted to become a specialist. I actually thought like, why would I ever specialist? Why would I ever want to restrict myself to doing one thing for the rest of my life? But then I got to that stage where I found dentistry actually very overwhelming because there was so much to know about so much. And there were all of these things that I was seeing online, beautiful fillings, excellent root canals, veneers, and it just felt like it was too much. So I reached a stage where I wanted to know a lot or more about a narrow aspect of things because that felt more manageable, that felt more doable, more comfortable. So I was like, okay, well, in that case, I think I'm going to look into further study. So then I did my membership, um, which is a two-year program through the Royal Australasian College of Dental Surgeons. Um, And I signed up for that because I moved from, uh, at the time I was living in Sydney, I moved from Sydney to Perth and I didn't know anyone. And as part of doing this membership program through the college, you were assigned mentors. So I thought, okay, it's great. I'll get to know a couple of people people in Perth and they can help me. I can go to them for career advice. And it worked out really well because that was what happened actually. So then I finished this program and then I decided that I wanted to learn more, do a little bit more studies. Then I narrowed down the two um, specialties that I was interested in. One of it is obviously oral medicine. Can you guess what the other was? Um, no, go for it. It's actually pediatric dentistry. That was the other um, option that I very seriously considered. Um, I ended up doing a rotation in oral medicine and I realized that I really liked oral medicine and then seeing pediatric patients as opposed to seeing pediatric patients and then doing a little bit of oral med. So um, I liked the way that I ended up doing it. So now I do oral medicine. I see adults and kids, but I do have a um, position at the children's hospital. So um, I, I really enjoy that. So I feel like I've lucked out a little bit with getting the uh, best of both worlds there. So a little off topic of burning mouth, but what kind of things are you, you seeing kids about in oral medicine? Because, you know, I often think of older people with oral medicine or oral cancer a lot, but what are some of the things that you're seeing kids about? Yeah, no, so that's that's definitely true. So we see um, people, kids, younger people with temporomandibular joint disorders. Sometimes they get juvenile arthritis. Um, there's a lot of ulcers. Mm, sometimes the um, kids, um, the kids going transplant or cancer treatment. So we so we do see a, a, a few of those. Yeah, oh, well, that's really interesting. What do you think? So oral medicine is obviously quite varied in a lot of the things that you're doing. And, and do you think that was appealing as well? Like there's a lot more variety than, you know, if you're an endodontist, it's endodontics every day. <laughs> I don't want any endodontist to hate me, but yeah, I definitely feel oral medicine is more interesting. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, like, I like the variety. So the thing that I think the most interesting part about oral medicine is that 
um, you know, you, you never know what's going to walk through your door and everything. Sometimes you need to consider all the investigations, differential diagnoses. Like it's almost like working through a puzzle to get to the right answer. So, yeah, so that's that's the bit I like the most, the, how interesting it is. Yeah, definitely. I'm curious as to like the definition of oral medicine. It sounds like what we call like oral mac oral maxillofacial surgery in the U.S. Is there really? Um, but we also talk a lot about in the U.S. where we need to move to instead of it being dentistry being considered oral medicine. So I just want to kind of define those things just for the differences with different countries. Yeah, of course, of course. I mean, I think sometimes people do find it quite confusing. I think the US can be a bit confusing because you actually have oral medicine, which is a recently recognized specialty in the US. You have oral facial pain and then you have oral pathology as well. So they can all sort of overlap a little bit. So essentially what oral medicine is, is that we deal with the um, the medical management of patients with head and neck conditions so your cancers precancers your lumps your bumps um, your swellings your saliva changes your taste changes your burning mouth temporomandibular joints or joint disorders headache um, non-odontogenic facial pain we would see we also do see dental sleep medicine which is one of the uh, core competencies for oral medicine um, in australia so basically the difference between surgeons, and I actually work with the surgeon when I go up to Darwin for work, um, and we actually uh, mesh quite well because he would see the uh, surgical patient. So for example, if you think about temporomandibular joint disorder, some cases would manage well with conservative treatment. Actually, most cases would, would be managed well with conservative treatment, you know, occlusal splints, you know, counseling, soft diet, exercises, all of that sort of stuff. And in some cases, they have a clear surgical indication and then temporomandibular joint surgery is required. So that's probably the difference. So they do a lot more surgical if we do minor surgery, it typically tends to be for diagnosis, like, for example, biopsies. Interesting. I love that. I, I if Now I totally understand why you went down that road. If I could redo, I think I would want to explore something like that. It's, that it's definitely really cool. so interesting. Hmm. Yeah. And it's like identifying the root cause of the problem, right? It's not, I feel like just in medicine in general, not just in dentistry, we kind of like I know for myself for many years, if patients came in and I saw evidence of bruxism and they had parafunctional issues, I'd be like, here, let's get you a night guard, right? But that's a band-aid to the issue. It's not identifying the root cause. So I think that what you do is so exciting because you're actually going to do the research to figure out what this root cause is. Yes. Um, sometimes, unfortunately, and I think we'll, we'll, we'll touch on this when we talk about you know oral burning, sometimes there is no answer. So that's also important to uh, to recognize that we don't have all the answers, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. So moving on to burning mouth, what can you explain to our listeners what exactly it is? Yeah. So when we talk about oral burning, there's basically two sort of categories that we can break it down into straight away. One of it is oral burning as related to a cause. So that would be something that, for example, if, when you first see a patient with oral burning, you will work through this sort of little sieve to actually find out if there is a cause why they are experiencing these symptoms. So for example, if they have an oral fungal infection, if they've got thrush, that could be a reason why they've got oral burning. Now, if you've gone through all of this process and you can't find anything wrong, there is what we call an idiopathic condition. So we don't exactly know what causes it. And it's a diagnosis of exclusion. So we've gone through this process and we can't find anything physically wrong on, um, on the lab 
investigations or imaging. And we diagnose these patients with burning mouth syndrome, which is uh, the which is the which is one of the uh, terms that's used for 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 this condition essentially. So I think we can maybe have a little bit of a chat about what are some of the common causes of oral burning, yeah. and then what do you do when there is nothing physically wrong? And the bit that I do want to stress as well, because I think this is one of the issues that I see sometimes when we are managing burning mouth syndrome patients. Just because there's nothing physically wrong doesn't mean that the patients made it up. Because sometimes yeah. they are very sensitive or they are very, um, they are very afraid that people are thinking that they have created this condition in their mind, which which is not true. Yeah, well, I think it's common enough that you realize that it's a thing, like you know, and it would be hard. Oh, yeah, for sure. I can't imagine. You it know what? I, what must be? It is. I think too for for general practitioners if they don't have a go-to or a solution, we then just naturally kind of get annoyed at the patient because we can't fix their problem. But then the patient receives that messaging in a negative way and it's not helpful at all. And lots of times, by the time the patient sees someone like me in oral medicine, they would have seen multiple people beforehand. Mm. Um, And then they would most commonly have had their concerns dismissed multiple times as well. So they can become a bit like, you know, sen- well, fair enough, because I would be too, but they would be a bit like sensitive, like this is real, this is actually happening, you have to believe me. I'd be like, no, I believe you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's horrible yeah. for them to actually feel like they've got to fight for someone to believe them as well as already feeling terrible. And sometimes, the, yeah, and sometimes the difficult part is that I believe them, they know I believe them, but it's burning mouth syndrome, so not something, so in this case, it's the idiopathic um, condition that I'm talking about, is not easily treated. So sometimes they have to accept the diagnosis um, and then decide if they want management, because it's also not uncommon for patients to not accept that this is their diagnosis and then try uh, many different things to try and um, solve the problem. So yeah, it's a a big topic, but excited to get into it. So what are some of the common causes? So the most common cause is actually a a medication-related side effect. So there are many medications that can actually cause oral burning. So sometimes your proton pump inhibitors, um, some of your tricyclic antidepressants, some of your antihypertensives. So the thing with talking about a medication-related side effect is that a lot of people think that sometimes there is a clear timeline So they think that if I start medication A and I get a side effect within two weeks and then the side effect goes away a week after I stop the medication, it's related to that. But actually, it's not true. You can get people that can get side effects from medications years after they've already been on that medication. Sometimes the medication-related side effect may not go away immediately after they stop. Sometimes it might take a really long time to go away. And another one is um, supplements, which people don't realize. So You see some people who Google online that vitamin B12 deficiency, for example, may cause oral burning. So they go out and start taking large amounts of vitamin B, but large amounts of vitamin B can actually cause neuropathy. Um, And there is this um, ingredient in a supplement in Australia, it's called Armour Force. Um, In the US, the actual herb is called Andrographis. So over COVID, it became very popular because it's this... um, over-the-counter supplement that you can buy for cold and flu support, like immune support. Um, However, there is a therapeutic guidelines, uh, there's a therapeutic warning against it in Australia that it can cause taste changes and oral burning. 
So there's a lot of these things that like we we try to find out, like, are there any new medications? Have they changed their diet? Are they starting any sort of new supplements? Another one that I thought was really interesting, actually, you guys might have to interrupt me because I'm just going to keep talking. No, that's great. <laughs> but another one that's really interesting is um, pine nuts. So there was this thing that was actually called pine nut syndrome or pine mouth syndrome, where people were starting to get taste changes and oral burning from uh, consuming pine nuts. And the New South Wales government actually put a warning out um, because it was happening uh, more and more frequently. And I realized when I looked online that there were certain types of pine nuts, um, particularly some that I think were coming from China, um, that could cause some of these symptoms. So sometimes even certain wow. foods that people are consuming can cause that as well. Um, so I thought it was quite interesting, actually. What, um, the whole, what do you think is in the pine nut that causes it? It's actually the type of pine nut. So if you get like Australian or Italian, you might people might have to actually look up the different types of pine nuts. Yeah. But most of the pine nuts are fine because they're edible pine nuts. But if you get pine nuts from um, China, um, just the ingredient, just that type of pine nuts can actually cause these symptoms. Now, what people were doing before they realized this was that obviously the Chinese pine nuts were cheaper. So they were mixing it in with the Korean and the Italian and the Australian pine nuts and selling it all as a bag of pine nuts. Because when you buy a bag of pine nuts in a store, most people wouldn't try to find out like where they're from, right? You yeah. just buy pine nuts. Um, and then they realized that because they were mixing it in, that they were causing that. So I think actually the um, amount of these cases have reduced now because they are now getting pine nuts that are not being contaminated with other types of pine nuts. Interesting. Yeah. No, and um, it's I imagine like when you have someone with burning mouth, you've really got to mm. deep dive into so many things so that you can find out information like this to try and eliminate. So like, you know, so you're talking about diet, medications, like it's quite a comprehensive yes. consult that you're going to have to do. Do you I have, have – sorry. I'm sorry. I mean, I have a question. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Do you have um, them track, like submit like a nutrition log or anything like that as you're working with them to kind of discover what's going on? Sometimes we do, especially if they do suspect that that – um, that if they do notice, like, for example, when they have cinnamon-containing foods. So sometimes if it's accompanied with other symptoms, like if they've actually got lip swelling or anything that could be uh, indicative of orofacial granulomatosis, I do get them to keep a diary for me and I get them to stay away from benzoates and cinnamon. Um, and that one there, it's, um, I give them like a whole booklet because they have to stay away from a lot of preservatives that's found in the supermarket. So I do sometimes do that. But not always, because sometimes by the time these patients see me, they have already done that. They've been through that route and they are just needing help. Um, I was going to say as well that I do, I have actually created, so normally when a patient comes in and I talk to them about oral burning, I created a graphic that I show them on my computer that has some of the most common causes of oral burning and I explain to them what we're trying to do. I'm happy to send you guys the graphics if any of your um, yeah. readers want to look at that. So. Yeah, Hmm. So we usually start off, sorry, can you still hear me? Yeah. Oh, perfect. So we usually start off with the medication related, which is the most common cause of the oral burning. Now, let me just pull up graphic here. 
So we usually go with medication related. And then the other things that I would ask them about is their general health. And a lot of this, you know, we would do as part of taking down their medical history and asking as well. Sometimes there can be metabolic syndromes that can actually cause oral burning. So things like thyroid dysfunction. So if their thyroid levels are not correct or if they have uncontrolled diabetes, so one of the tips that I usually give when I'm taking a medical history from a patient, I don't think it's enough that we find out that they do have this condition. We should also know what their control is. So if they've got type 2 diabetes, I ask them things like, um, you know, like when was the last time you checked it? When did your doctor last check it? And most times patients who, yeah, they will check it. So we want to know what their control of their diabetes is. Um, we can ask them if they have any like systemic or nutritional deficiencies. Iron deficiency is quite common in women. So usually if there's oral burning, I would suggest some blood tests. So if they've got, you know, diabetes, we'll, we'll do a, a, an HbA1c. Um, if they've got suspicion of thyroid dysfunction, I'll do their thyroid hormones. I usually check their vitamin B12, their iron, their folate, their full blood count. So there's a few things there that I'll just talk to patients about. Look, if you're being, if you're deficient in certain vitamins or if you're anemic or anything like that, then you can get these changes in your mouth, including the oral burning. So typically, unless the patient has had a blood test with their GP that has covered all of that already, I would cover it. Um, one of the things that can happen sometimes is that you may have a patient that comes in to see you and they go, oh, I've seen my doctor, I've had my recent blood test, they were all good. The problem with that is that every GP will request a slightly different blood test. So usually I would get a copy of it and have a look. And if any of these, the ones that I've just mentioned, uh, are not there, then I would usually recommend that they uh, repeat the blood test. Yeah. Hmm. And are you often finding then a lot of the time some undiagnosed issues as you move along with these patients? Yeah. So um, to be honest, a majority of the patients that I see are actually burning mouth syndrome patients because um, it, they, uh, I'm sure this is the same in the US. There's a bit of a wait list to get in to see us. So by the time they've seen an oral medicine specialist, they would have usually tried a few things. GPs yeah. would have really would have usually done some of the obvious blood tests as well. Um, sometimes if there is, because there are some actual central nervous system uh, pathologies that can cause it. So things like Alzheimer's and stuff like that can cause oral burning as well. That's usually picked up already in the medical setting. Um, so a majority of the cases are idiopathic, but I always repeat because I don't think people may have done little bits here and there, but it's probably not been done like, like thoroughly. Yeah. Yeah. Cause everyone's done a little bit basically. Um, the the other bit that I think is quite important, like for dental professionals to do, is that, you know, say you ask all these questions, you know, that you ask them if they're anemic, if they've had their recent blood tests, um, is to then have a look in the mouth. Because there are things that you can pick up and, you know, oral candidosis being one of the um, one of the ones to pick up. So if you start seeing that the patient has, you know, areas of redness in their mouth that's quite sore or they've recently had a broad spectrum antibiotic or if they've got these like pseudomembranous candidosis with the, you know, the cottage cheese in the mouth, yeah. you wipe it away, it's red underneath. You know, that's that's a candidal infection that, that can cause 
um, or burning. So that can be treated with an antifungal. Sometimes you may see like white plaques, white striae, could be lichen planus, which can also cause oral burning. So the any of the oral infections or oral mucosal type problems, um, I think is a good idea for a dental professional to see and then exclude. Now, if all of that has been done um, and the saliva looks fine, the mouth looks fine, the patient's healthy, doctors have done the blood tests, you don't know what's going on, then you know that then I think is a reasonable suspicion um, for um, you know burning mouth syndrome. Um, the other thing as well, which I think is a really good thing to be on our radar, is that causes of trauma to the mouth that can cause oral burning. So sometimes it can be gastroesophageal reflux disease. So if you see a patient with lots of erosion everywhere, they've got reflux, it's some of the reflux medications can actually cause oral burning themselves and reflux can cause oral burning too. So that's a good one to know. Um, and then sometimes you might have people who have things like, you know, bulimia or anorexia. Um, yeah, that, that that's one of the things you want to be sure. Even just plain, simple dehydration can also cause oral burning. Um, and then the other one is if you are seeing someone who has had head and neck radiotherapy and they get oral burning after, sometimes there can be trauma to the um, oral cavity from the radiotherapy that can cause burning. How common is that post-radiation for patients to have that? Um, I don't think it is overly common in yeah. the chronic state. I can't give you an exact number. I think initially when someone's going through chemotherapy, like what they're currently having it, I think they almost all do. Um, yeah. But, you know, it, when you start to reach like a couple of months after, six months after, um, it's, it's, it's rare. But, yeah. you know, it's possible because sometimes nerve damage can cause like symptoms like burning um, long after. Yeah, I have a question regarding saliva because a lot of our listeners are in general practitioner offices. So if they have a patient who's presenting with some, um, you know, sharing that they feel like they have oral burning, what are some of the things from a saliva standpoint we should be looking for? Basically dryness. So if you if if someone's lacking saliva, that can actually irritate the oral cavity and cause oral burning. So one of the things um, I think is a good idea is to see if there's good amount of saliva at the floor of mouth. You want to see if there's floor of mouth pooling. If there's things like your, the mirror is sticking to the oral mucosa or anything like that, you know, the patient's clearly dry. Again, the most common cause of dry mouth is actually polypharmacy and medication related. Um, a lot of patients will be on your antihypertensives, sometimes your antidepressive medications, your, you know, your, um, your diabetic medications. There's actually a, a really big list of them that can cause it. So I think have a look in the patient's mouth if they have dry eyes as well as a dry mouth it might be a good idea considering uh consider to consider a referral to oral medicine in case they do have an autoimmune condition such as Sjogren's syndrome um and then that you know that that can be assessed if they just have dry mouth that isn't too bad they don't really have any dry eyes um then you can talk to the patient about management actually you should talk to the patient about management anyway um because the most common cause is actually dehydration um, lots of patients are actually cured by uh, making sure that they drink two liters of water a day or, or you know, adequate water intake, reduce caffeine intake. Isn't that crazy, right? <laughs> Such an easy fix. Oh, sorry, Melissa. I can't see. My video's off, everyone. My, I've got no internet. My It's playing up, so I can't see. <laughs> um, I have a question, Amanda. What is your go-to products for people with a dry mouth? So I actually like Oral 7. So I'm not sure if that's uh, available 
in um, America, but Oral 7 is, uh, the reason I like Oral 7 is because it actually has salivary enzymes in them. It has lysozyme, it has lactoferrin, which I think is the only product on the market that does. Um, as far as I know, and don't sue me if it's not true, but I've heard that, that GlaxoSmithKline is not making biotin in Australia anymore. So I think it's going to be a little bit difficult to access that. Um, oh, wow. This I, is what I heard. I recommend well, so I'm quite glad that... Do you get that in America, Melissa? Biotin? No, Oral 7. Oral 7. I have to look it up. It's not I, I, It's not one that I've heard of in the past. I'll have to take a look and see yeah. if we have availability to it. Yeah, biotin is not helpful with the experience that I've had in the past. It just doesn't really do much, and the pH is extremely low. Yeah. yeah. So they they um they, they had to drop they they drop there was an original formulation and then they reformulated it with a lower pH and without the saliva enzymes. Mm. So oral seven um they have it in a mouthwash they have it in a mouth gel they have it in a mouth spray um they have it in gum so there's there's a bunch of different ways which is helpful because then patients have the choice as to how they would like to use it. Um, the other product that I do like is called Xylemelts, which is xylitol, um, and it comes with a little brown backing, stick it on the gum, it stimulates saliva. So that's another one that um, particularly my post-radiotherapy patients quite find quite helpful. Yeah, that we definitely have in America, the Xylemelts. And I'm actually looking up right now Oral 7, and it does, uh, it does not look like we have it in the U.S., no. Yeah, it's it's quite good. I I found patients don't mind the taste of it and, you know, it's not too hard to find and I've had quite good response from them. So I'm quite happy that we're recommending the same thing because I was like, oh, what's Amanda recommending? <laughs> and um, Hello, when, yeah. when you go through and you can't say, okay, this is a medication, we think this is medication or, you know, we think this is because of your dry mouth or some of the other things that you've mentioned. When you've got to diagnose someone with idiopathic burning mouth, how does how do you think that affects them? Because that's kind of, you know, it almost feels better when there's a reason. Yeah, definitely. So it goes one of two ways in general. One of it is that patients are relieved to, to have a diagnosis because they finally got to the stage where someone has told them what is wrong with them um and yeah so you, you get patients who 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 are happy um you also get some patients who have already googled it and they do suspect that this is what they have because they've gone through everything else and nobody can find it so they think is this actually what i have and it's a relief for them um and then you get a few patients who um, are not happy with the diagnosis or they feel that it is something um that is that is something else that is the issue yeah. um and you know the important thing is that you know if you have a hammer everything is a nail so it's quite important to like keep an open mind and listen to what the patient patient has um, and decide if the patient um, actually does have burning mouth syndrome or not. And sometimes if they, if you feel that they've got burning mouth syndrome, but they don't think they have, they may benefit from a second opinion. Yeah. And then once you've got a diagnosis, what can we actually do for these patients to help them? Yeah. So if they have an underlying systemic cause or any of those issues that we talked about, we can try to address the cause that might be uh, related to the oral burning. Um, actually, before we get to that, that I might just make a point that um, we, we are, I am moving away from calling it burning mouth syndrome as much now. Um, the international classifications of oral facial pain actually have like diagnostic criteria for burning mouth syndrome. So it's anyone that has oral burning for more than two hours 
um, a day for more than three months. Now, the reason why I'm sort of moving away from calling it burning mouth syndrome is that over two thirds, so a majority of patients who have burning mouth syndrome have other symptoms as well. So there are other symptoms, and this might actually strike a chord with you because you may be thinking of a patient that came to you with oral burning, but they also had taste changes. They also had a bad taste, mm. a metallic taste. They had a foreign sensation. Their tongue felt swollen. Their tongue looked redder to them than normal. They're having difficulty swallowing. There's a lot of other, um, what we call dysesthetic sensations that can be related to burning mouth syndrome. So the reason why I like to call it oral dysesthesia instead is that Patients, if they are diagnosed with burning mouth syndrome, they may go, well, actually, I only have a little bit of burning. It's the bad taste that is the yeah. bigger issue for me. So it sort of encompasses it a little bit better. So globally, it's still called burning mouth syndrome on the international classification of oral facial pain one. But we tend to describe it as well as a spectrum of symptoms. That's quite interesting because you do get those patients sometimes that come in, you know, and they think they've got, they need a filling or something like that. And you can't find anything wrong in their mouth, but they're like, there's something wrong with the taste of my mouth. Like you get patients like that yes. a lot, actually. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So you, so a lot of them are um, a spectrum. So first of all, they, um, you want to exclude them for actually being a problem. But yeah. if it is then thought to be idiopathic, um, you know, you get these um, other sensations that we talked about. There's also something else that's on the spectrum, which is called occlusal dysesthesia. And I think the orthodontist or um, practitioners might see that more. Um, and that's when someone feels that, for example, there's something stuck in between their teeth. So I had a patient recently who had something stuck in between her maxillary central incisors, you know, for years. And there's actually nothing there. Like imaging has been done, um, probing everything. There's nothing there, but there's a sensation of something stuck in between her teeth. And then for the orthodontist, it will be like the, the people who feel like their bite's a little bit off. You know, if they felt like maybe if that tooth just turns a little bit and they can bite on it just a fraction more, then their bite will be perfect. So you get like these sort of spectrum of sensations yeah. as well. Oh, wow. I've never heard of that before. That's really interesting. Yeah, hmm. I've never heard of that either. Hmm. So I've had a patient... <laughs> So I've had I've had a patient who had a fishbone stuck in her tongue and for two years she went to see everyone. You know, she saw oral medicine, she saw oral surgery. But the thing was that the fishbone was no longer there. Oh. It, it was gone, but it just left that sensation that it was there all the time. And it really significantly bothered her because the thing with these patients with oral burning or say oral dysesthesia, burning mouth syndrome, um, in some cases, in most cases, it really significantly affects their quality of life. They, they yeah. are extremely bothered by it. Um, sometimes it, to the point where they find it difficult to think about anything else. So there's a very high percentage of patients who, you know, then, you know, have anxiety, depression. And it's difficult to know whether, because the studies do show that these um, these conditions are more prevalent in people with burning mouth syndrome but you know is the condition making it worse or is their mental health condition making the burning worse like it's it's, it's a bit of a chicken and egg situation as well i feel sometimes yeah so yeah and so just to be clear it's not that they are depressed and therefore they've made up something to do with their tongue yeah. we don't really understand yeah we don't understand the nature of the relationship but more people have mental health issues if they have burning mouth syndrome and vice versa and i think it's unsurprising because imagine if your tongue is burning and you have a bad taste and you know all the time it's hard to deal with yeah it would be Absolutely. like that lady you're saying that that sensation of the fishbone wouldn't go away that would affect you 
constantly because if you always feel like something's stabbing you in the tongue, like that would be awful. Mm. Mm. And sometimes we get... Mm. And sometimes we get that as well with denture patients. So we know that denture patients are, some patients find it very difficult to get used to dentures. And a lot of times, you know, it's something that's easily fixed. So the denture needs an adjustment, um, yes. et cetera, a reline, et cetera, et cetera. But sometimes there are patients who have oral dysesthesia as associated with their dentures. And they find, you know, practitioner after practitioner, they have four or five dentures and they always hold out hope that the next person that they find is the one that's going to make this magical set of dentures that will cure all their problems. Yeah. But the problem wasn't the denture to begin with. And sometimes it's very hard. Say if you're, you know, say if you're a dental practitioner, right? And then someone comes up to you and goes like, you know, um, all of these people that I've seen, they've all done rubbish jobs at their dentures. I'm so upset. I spend so much money and I'm desperate. I can't eat. I can't go out. You know, I need to have dentures to function. Then because we're all very caring people, like what we would then think about doing is to actually all right well let me try to make you a denture and then the cycle continues yeah so it can be quite difficult it's very interesting because with dentistry there's so much um just mental health aspects that are attached to what we do and I don't think profession-wide we really take that into consideration as much because you know you have to process things especially like Tabitha and our background is implant dentistry we both worked in practices where they were doing a lot of all on x type of cases and you know if you don't take into consideration how mentally devastating that is to have all of your teeth removed and then when you take that appliance that prosthetic out and you just see these little metal nubs sticking out of your gums you know it's it's a very impactful yeah. for somebody and their perception and their their um confidence and mental health, so many things. So I think that's really interesting point that you're making that we really do need to have this level of counseling that goes, that's associated with some of the things that we're doing from a, you know, restorative standpoint or, or what have you, you know, even, you know, just having the fact that like, I, I didn't even know that that was a situation where somebody could still feel something after the, the point of issue has been removed. So that's really, really an interesting point that you make. Mm. Um, uh, you know just just to go on a slight tangent as well I this is not taught it's not taught in dental school I'm not sure if you guys ever had any of this in your training um you know it's so important to know how to communicate with patients identify mental health issues know where to get them support but for ourselves as well because you know I, this is completely a tangent but I least I recently listened um to a lecture um by Dr. Anne-Lee Weston she's talking about burnout in dentistry and the levels are extremely high like we need to take you know how can we care for others if we're if we're burnt out as well so i think you know we we need to identify it among our profession and then among our patients mm. and then know what to do with it so it's definitely i'm so glad that that's something that people are talking about more now because yeah. when i went through men, uh, when i went through dental school I, I i can't remember having a single lecture about this no no, no outside of like ergonomics and taking taking care of your body from that aspect we really mm. don't talk about that. And we have patients that share some kind of heavy emotional things with us. Yeah. You know, sometimes we're the only people that they see and feel safe to be able to share these kind of messages with. Yeah. So yeah, there's a lot of, you know, we need help as well to kind of stay balanced. That's a great point that you make. 
Um, so I have a quick question for you because um, we always like to give our listeners ways that they can take what they learn in our podcast and apply it in their operatories or their, their surgeries. Yes. So um, if a patient, if I have a patient come into my operatory and they're sharing with me, Hey Melissa, you know what I'm having, um, my mouth feels like it's burning. It's really uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. I have this strange um, metallic type taste. What yep. is the next kind of steps that I should do as a practitioner? Yes. So I think the most important step is to actually investigate, manage and rule out any sort of dental problem. Periodontal problems, dental caries, oral mucosal conditions. Have a good look and identify. Now, if you've had a look and you don't think that it's anything related to teeth or gums or anything like that, I think that then that's a good point to refer because most people will not have the... um. Just because, you know, we see these all the time, whereas someone in general practice would see this maybe once or twice a year. Um, I think it's adequate to do your job, which is to check if there's any sort of odontogenic or periodontal issue. And if that's not there, then consider referral. Because one of the, um, so the, the Italians, they did a paper. And one of the things that significantly impacts these patients with burning mouth is the level of misdiagnosis or like, you know, like, like, people like they they just end up going in circles like they see all of these different people and they get given you know different like you know basically you send this patient to a gp they're going to be put on antifungals Um, according to this italian paper don't come for me gps but you know like sometimes it is facilitating the patient to see the right person as well so i think at a a general dental level or at a dental practitioner level what you really want to do is to make sure that the teeth are good, the gums are good, and then anything else, then there will be different levels of workup and then consider appropriate referral. Because I think just from memory looking at this um, Italian paper, I think patients on average, their their diagnosis was between two to four years after they first presented oh. with symptoms. Mm. Wow. That's wow. a really I long time. To suffer. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's- so do you find it hard, Amanda, that if people are taking, like if someone's not, you know, they're taking two to four years before they get to you. You would be finding, like, is it hard because you're getting patients really at their wits end by the time they're getting to you as well? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think the ones that do end up seeing me, um, like, it's good because they're receptive because I'm also conscious about how many of them don't end up getting to see us and they just end up with in this in this issue for um, for a long time I mean I know we were talking about oral burning but you know just as an aside like when we're talking about nerve problems because burning mouth syndrome so it's not a condition that someone's made up in their head it's actually a peripheral neuropathy where this actual you know nerve damage um, to to the small fibers of the tongue and then there's some brain changes there's some central uh, central changes as well um, you can get that you can get people stay in pain even if they're not having any sort of um, dental problem anymore and so that, that can be called like a trigeminal neuropathy so an example you know a patient that's had a wisdom tooth removed and they've had some nerve damage and they stay in pain for ages like we yeah. see some of those cases um, come through as well so yeah I, I I do feel sorry for the patients but you know the, these patients are also not easy to manage from a prognosis point of view so it's so what we consider success in oral facial pain is a 50% reduction in symptoms. So when we see burning mouth syndrome patients, I think one of the important things maybe for your listeners to realize as well is that we're not really talking about a cure. 
So if you have a patient that goes back to see you and go, I've been diagnosed with burning mouth syndrome, I was put on this medication, it worked a little bit, but I just I just want to get rid of this pain and I, I don't really want to go back and see the specialist because all they do is keep giving us medications. Um, unfortunately, that's kind of what the management is at the moment. It's pharmacotherapy, which yeah. is medications, there's psychological support, cognitive behavioral therapy, and success rate is 50% reduction in symptoms. So where it's a, it's a very rare patient that will get their symptoms 100% resolved permanently. Wow, that's so a great it's, point. Mm, yeah. So it's important that they know that too, and they have realistic expectations. And what are the, some of the things that you're doing for them as part of that management once they're diagnosed with it? Yeah. So the psychosocial component is huge. And sometimes you will get patients who are very reluctant, for example, to see a psychologist because they may have misunderstood. They may think that you've made it up. They may think that you're trying to calm them off um, to shrink, you know. But the way that I explain to my patients is that it is almost impossible for this not to affect your quality of life. If we're talking about a chronic condition, which is something that is not going to go away that easily, most patients will have to learn how to live with it. And that's beyond my skill set to teach someone how to do that. And that's where psychologists will come in and they will talk to patients, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy, because what we're trying to do with the medications and everything like that is that we're trying to get the nerves to settle down so they don't send as much signal or they don't fire as easily. So you don't get as much of these symptoms. You can do that with medications. You can do that with some supplements. You can also do that by training the brain how to do that. So that's how I talk to my patients about, you know, seeing if they're open to see a psychologist. And a lot of times, maybe by the time they come to see me, um, they understand that this is something that they will probably have to live with and they don't mind getting a little bit of tips and support on how to yeah. do that. So so that's that's the first big part, like first accepting the diagnosis and then, you know, speaking to them about psychosocial support. Lots of times, especially, um, you know, you want to ask them questions like, have they got family support? You know, are there any major stresses in their life? All of that goes into this conversation. Um, if they're happy to trial medications, we can do normal or not neuro, not normal, but like the the usual neuropathic pain medications. Um, tricyclic antidepressants we can give as well. Um, there is a benzodiazepine called clonazepam, which is used for treatment of burning mouth syndrome. Um, the problem with some of these medications is that there are side effects. So, for example, clonazepam, it can cause drowsiness if you swallow too much of it or addiction. So, what I get my patients to do is actually use it topically rather than swallow it. Um, you know, so these are types of medications, and I actually completely understand um, if I've got patients who don't want to go on those medications because yeah. they are worried about the side effects. So a lot of times, it's what they are happy to tolerate. Because so some patients may be like, "All I wanted to know was that I don't have cancer. This burning is not related to cancer. The burning, um, I can deal with." Or sometimes patients will be like, I'm happy that there's nothing seriously wrong with me um, and I'm going to try a supplement instead. So there are some supplements like alpha-lipoic acid, for example, that has been shown to help with burning mouth syndrome. Uh, sometimes they can use spicy mouthwashes. So capsaicin is an ingredient that makes chili spicy. Um, you know, sometimes people who have um, shingles, they can actually get a capsaicin cream that will help with the nerve pain. So you can actually get a capsaicin mouthwash that tricks the uh, vanilloid receptors on the tongue to fire less. So there are a couple of those things that they can try as well. Um, yeah, and then, yeah, supplements. Yeah. And medication. what supplements do they, are they trying? Sorry? What kind of supplements are they using? 
So alpha lipoic acid will probably be the most common one that I would start someone on. And they usually take between 600 to 800 milligrams a day. With the supplements, I get them to stay on it for about three months at least. Um, there is another um, medication or supplement called PEA, um, palmethoethylidinite. Um, someone's going to correct me on that if I've said it wrong. Um, but it's a glial cell modulator as well, and that can help in, with chronic pain that's being used in the chronic pain clinics. Oh, wow. um, so those are typically the ones that I would recommend. And they can do it with a capsaicin mouthwash if they want to as well, yeah. um, which is basically just the, the, the spicy mouthwash. Yep. And do, is there an age group you see this more commonly in? Yeah, so actually it is most common in women. A lot of oral medicine conditions are more yeah. common in women. It's more postmenopausal women. And sometimes it can actually be quite difficult to know um, if it's menopause that's causing the oral burning or whether we just see burning mouth syndrome more commonly in that population. I have a question so what is about that, postmenopausal women, because I was reading a study the other day on the oral health effects of like menopause and they were mm-hmm. saying that like burning mouth, uh, dry mouth and um, some mm-hmm. other things were all issues. And then this study was looking at HRT treatment. And yep. so it was looking at women on HRT and women not on HRT. And they were reporting more um, menopause issues in the mouth for women who are not on HRT. And so have mm-hmm. you seen HRT therapy help with burning mouth at all before or that or it doesn't? It can, but then not burning mouth syndrome because burning mouth syndrome is the diagnosis of exclusion. So if I did suspect that the patient was going through menopause, they're getting a lot of these other symptoms, uh, then they would typically see their GP to trial HRT and then I'll review and see how they go after. Um, But, you know, to be honest, most of the times by the patients have seen me, like it's, you know, they've had it for years already. Yeah. But yeah, no, I've I've had HRT. I've had a couple of patients start HRT and their symptoms were resolved. So that was really yeah, it's quite interesting. Um, That's very menopause interesting. just sounds so like so much fun. Can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> Why do you think in oral? You said in oral medicine, it's mainly older women. Why do you think we? It's us again. <laughs> I, I honestly don't know, but you know, every time I talk about it, like prevalence of TMD, prevalence of oral like complainers, yeah. it just seems to be postmen of older women, and I don't know why. That's a great question. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure. Lucky mm. again, we just keep winning the lottery. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, with other conditions like uh, like complainers that we can see patients may complain of a burning mouth with that do you have the same like supplements and mouthwash recommendation for those cases as well yeah so say if i see someone with a mucosal condition so let's say it is oral lichen planus um then the treatment will be different because oral lichen planus is immune mediated so the body's immune system is driving it so typically i would manage it via something like a topical corticosteroid instead Mm-hmm. Yeah, because uh, targeting uh, targeting different things. So the medications for burning mouth syndrome will be targeting receptors on the nerves, um, both centrally and peripherally. And then for something like lichen planus, we'll be targeting the body's immune system locally to get them to not have such an exuberant response. So is it possible, though? I know it's different, but would there be any supplements that might that a lichen planus patient could go on proactively or prophylactically that could help reduce the outbreaks? Um, there is 
some evidence that there are some supplements that can help. Um, I think the one that probably has not bad um, evidence for it, like not strong, right, but but not horrible, will be something like um, aloe vera. So some of my patients who cannot tolerate any medications, they can't be on steroids, they can try things like salt water rinses or aloe vera gel, which in if you're in Australia, if you're listening and you're from Australia, you can actually buy a 99% aloe vera juice from Coles or Woolworths and they can use it as a mouthwash as often as they need. So something like that is quite simple and can help. Um, other people have tried things like turmeric and curcumin and stuff like that, but um, I think the evidence for that is not quite as strong. And then I think if you have too much turmeric, it causes like bleeding issues and stuff. So I tend to just go for the aloe vera. Um, I have had a couple of patients try to use their plants at home, which I think can be done, but it's uh, I think it's quite messy. So I think more of them like the store-bought juice. Yeah. <laughs> which is 99% yeah. aloe vera. I, was, pretty cool. I have a large aloe vera plant at home. And one of my friends said to me, <laughs> they were over there like, do you make juice with it? And I was like, and then they explained the whole process. And I was like, yeah, that's very involved. No, thank you. <laughs> um, I almost admit, I don't know the process. Do you just squeeze it? No? No, you've got to like peel it, take the pulp out, mash it, and then squeeze it through like muslin cloth. Like, and uh, yeah, so I was uh, just like, no, no, this is all too much. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's easier to grab it off the shelf. Yeah, yeah it's not hard to find it. Really. <laughs> Getting off topic a little bit, what are some common, um, you know how you just said then turmeric um, can cause some bleeding issues. What are some common yes. supplements that patients take that we should be wary of as health professionals? Oh, that's, that's a really long list of that. So I would suggest, um, you know, for someone, um, I can send you a graphic as well, but yeah, I think is. the most important ones is mm, turmeric is a big one, fish yeah. oil. St. John's wort has uh, quite a few interactions as well. Um, garlic, you know, ginseng, fever few. Um, so there has been a couple of articles written by Dr. Geraldine Moses, um, who's a pharmacist uh, with the Australian Dental Association. She's got some good resources out there as well. But those are pretty much um, the yeah. ones that I would look out for. Um, I, one of my oral surgeon friends tells me that, you know, he's always very wary when he has a patient coming in taking fish oil because they do tend to bleed a lot more, especially if taking large amounts of it. And so I think like 90% of my patients are taking fish oil. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, so yeah. if you see a patient with fish oil and you're wondering why, why they're bleeding so much, um, that, that could be why. Yeah. Yeah, really interesting. It's been a it's really very, very interesting, interesting chat. I've really enjoyed it. I thank you so much for giving your time to us and talking about this and, um, you know, enlightening us a little bit more on it. I think I'm feeling a lot more empathetic for these patients because, yeah, you know, it sounds like a lot of the time this is just going to be something that they have to deal with and that is such a huge burden for that patient. So I think I really hope that one listeners take from this refer quickly when you can't eliminate and you know rule out other stuff and to have a lot of empathy for these patients because it would be really horrible. Mm, definitely because you know these patients are sometimes your anxious patients so yeah. they're the ones that come in you need to spend a lot of time with them or they have a lot of questions sometimes if they're fearful or anxious it comes off as anger they can be a little bit nasty a little yeah. bit cut. But then you have to remember that there's a reason why they're like that. It's because they're struggling. Yeah, absolutely. That's such a great point that you just made. And I think it's also another key takeaway for us as practitioners is to 
know that in these scenarios, if we set the expectation that success is 50% reduction in symptoms, like that was a key when you had said that in my mind, because, you know, we, we don't always help them or, or, or steer them in the direction that this is what we can do. And this is the expectation they should have. So I think that that was a really great point as well. Yeah. Thank you. Cause yeah, cause it's not uncommon that sometimes my patients go back to my uh, referrers and they say like, you know, like it helped a little bit, but I still get some burning. And then I think what is then important is that the dental professional then reinforces like, it's actually really good that you've got a reduction in the symptoms. Like did a man yeah. say that it'll go away completely or like, you know, is, is she happy with your progress? And sometimes that's what the patient then needs to hear. And they'll be like, Oh, actually, you know what? I'm much better than I am. It's still there, but it's not bothering me as much. And that's like a really good thing to like celebrate with them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, definitely got to celebrate the wins wherever you get them, don't you? Like, but no, it's been really, really insightful, and I've really, really enjoyed it. I think we have to get you back about medications. Happy to anytime. Thank you so much for the invitation, I must say. Like I, I really admire the work that you're doing too, Tabitha. So well, I think this is this is fantastic. <laughs> no, thank you. It's been really, really good. And I think it's going to be really helpful for our listeners, um, you know, to learn more about this. And I really hope that, you know, I was quite mortified. I think the biggest thing, you know, when you said it can take two to four years before they get, you know, they find for a referral from that Italian paper, you know, I really hope that we as clinicians fasten that up for people because I think that would be a horrible cycle to be on for those patients. Absolutely. Because I feel like in the the actual day-to-day grind of being with patients, we might, you know, share as the doctor comes in to do an examination, doctor, you know, patient is experiencing A, B, C, and D, and they take a quick look around within five to 10 seconds and they're like, oh, well, let's reevaluate next time. And that's six, possibly more months, right? So that's such a great point to refer fast. And and really, as the dental hygienist, you have to use your voice. And and I hear what you're saying, doctor, and I don't agree because Mrs. Jones shared with me this, 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 and I'd really like her to get some help for those symptoms sooner than waiting six months to reevaluate. And it's a really quick way to be respectful and mm-hmm. redirect the, the um, conversation to the patient getting help. So I think that was like, that's definitely, I agree with you, Tab. That was like a huge key takeaway. Yeah. No. Thank you so much again. And I definitely think we need to have you back for another episode. Um, for sure. We really appreciated you giving up your time. Amanda's actually still at work because she had to do other meetings. So we appreciate that you're still at work at four to nine at night doing this with us. And um, just like your bio, you're dedicated and always doing something. And we appreciate how much you give to the community constantly and how much you give back. So thank you very, very much. Oh, yeah. thank you. It's it's been it's a pleasure. Thank you so much. And let's let her get home so she can get to her favorite thing, which is sleep. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening, everybody. And if you um, give us a like or subscribe on our podcast page, it'd be fantastic. And we hope you're following along on Instagram as well at Disrupting Dentistry Podcast. And we'll speak to you soon. Keep disrupting. Bye. Bye. And recording. Hey, thank you again so much for tuning into the Disrupting Dentistry podcast. We love to hear from you viewers and we love that you join us for our episodes. Please make sure to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. 
And leave us a review. We love reading reviews from all over the world. It's one of the things that actually makes all the hard work feel really worth it when we get to see which episodes you're enjoying or some feedback that you give. So leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or write something on our Facebook or our Instagram page. We'd love to hear from you. And thanks so much for listening. Keep on disrupting.